Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of the Center for the Advanced Study of India, or CASI, at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Gautam Nair, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow with CASI. In this anxious and difficult time, our thoughts are with everyone who has been adversely affected by the pandemic in India, the United States, and around the world. And also, uh, we record today as people across uh, India are affected by uh, a cyclone uh, in the Bay of Bengal. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Dr. Devjani Bhattacharya, who is an assistant professor of history at Drexel University. We will be discussing her recently published book titled Empire and Ecology in the Bengal Delta, The Making of Calcutta. Thank you very much, Professor Bhattacharya, for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much, Gautam, for having me and making time to do this talk. I really appreciated it. It's really my pleasure. So, Professor Bhattacharya, why don't you summarize your book and what the what the main problems are that motivate your inquiry? So this book uh, began actually as a dissertation. And one of the things I was struck by as I was looking at the urban historiography of India was it was very much premised on answering questions about disciplining colonial population and how disciplining and racial ideologies created basically the whole idea of white town and black town is one set of arguments. So uh, what has often been termed as the Foucauldian turn within urban, urban historiography, that as well as how biopolitics, basically it was a matter of population control, epidemics, plague, uh, cholera that really defined urban planning. And one of the things is one question that was always missing in this whole uh, argument was the question of urban property. And as someone growing up in India in the eighties, we know like what a contested field urban property is in any of South Asian cities. And I was kind of struck by the missing question of urban property within the historiography of the urban, while property was the most favorite topic, if one may say, of agrarian history or okay. forest history. So property was the lens to look at the agrarian world and the, the forest and the field as environmental historians would talk about it, whereas it's completely missing from the discussion. So I began by answering that, wanting to answer that very question of how do we write the history of urban property? which are, or is it just the same story that's happening in the agrarian fields? And once I went into the archive, I remember all I would see is questions about water. And for a long time, I kept putting those files of a historian, like sitting in the archive. And then it, it was, of course, like the end of summer, I was been wrapping up my archival work. I step out on a monsoon day out of the archives and I'm in knee deep in water. And then I'm like, why am I failing to see the question of water? And why are these contestations about water actually not part of the urban archive? So that's how it began. And as I worked through my project, I realized that the question of, if we start looking at the question of urbanization as contestations, not just over land, but also over water, we end up with a very different kind of history. And that's the kind of history I started to chart in my book, where I show how much water and imaginations of water, both its excess and its threats or the kind of landscapes this water creates in the Bengal Delta actually impacted how we look at landed property in, in, in the Bengal Delta, be it in some ways agrarian and be it uh, in urban. Unfortunately, I look at the urban and not the agrarian as much in the book. Okay, terrific. So, so as I understand it, hmm. what you're trying to do in part is to bridge these disparate avenues of scholarship. One, on the one hand, between... Um, urban histories and ecological histories by bringing the idea of property yeah. uh, into the study of 
urban history, which has been dominated so far by a focus on how the state disciplined unruly mm. uh, colonial regions. Mm. Um, so that's that's one, especially with a focus on disease and so forth, which mm. is which is quite timely. Mm. Uh, so that's 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 one idea. And then the second idea is to bring the study of water into the study of into the history of property as well. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So so these are some missing gaps and. Mm. The area that you study is, of course, Calcutta, um, which is a fascinating context for a variety mm. of reasons. And what is it that you find? What's the key argument that you make um, in the course of your book? So one of the key arguments I make, uh, so I, I see myself making kind of two kinds of arguments in the book. One is I say, uh, uh, one of the arguments I make is the if we look at water, we actually understand the workings of colonial law in ways we have failed to understand how colonial law worked. And instead of seeing, so it, water opens up these moments of limits in how urban property or how property is understand, understood in the colony. It actually takes apart when we look at uh, the debates over water, it actually takes apart the question of the land grant. It actually breaks down infrastructure and these moments of failure actually not failure but it's in these moments of failure you can look at the operations of colonial power so that's the larger kind of methodological framework that holds the book together and in by looking at this breakdown as moments where you can see clearly how colonial power worked you actually see how these kinds of limits that water posed to the idea of urban property or one may even take this further up and look at agrarian property can you really, really, can you begin to see how actually these were turned into moments of uh, uh, legal experimentation and financial experimentations to create land? And this allows me to really understand why amongst the many things, that many ways of building, a city, cit building cities, basically, or building a city, Reclamation became a very major way to build cities in the 20th century. And it's not just Calcutta. We, we know Jakarta was built through reclamation. Bangkok was built through reclamation. Bombay was built through reclamation. So in many of these coastal cities, reclamation became the mode. And I try to say that was not the only mode available. We've naturalized that as the only mode available. But it came out of a certain kind of contestation, certain kind history that water had with landed property in the colony in the 19th century. Okay, great. So, uh, did I lose? I might have lost you. you yeah, go ahead. Yes, we are recording on Zoom. So, uh, so, so, in, so to restate what often people focus on the technical aspects of reclamation. Yeah. And what you are saying is that actually, often disasters or you know, having to deal with water illuminates how the creation of land and property was also a process of legal and financial innovation. Yeah. And by focusing on these, we get a much richer understanding of how property came to be defined in major urban areas. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Much okay. better way of putting it. I think. <laughs> because I'm not an expert in this area. I'm also trying yeah. to understand myself. So, so how did you go about doing the research? How do you illustrate and demonstrate these arguments? So what I did was I was struck by, uh, it, was, it was actually a very, it was an interesting way of doing research because I really wanted to look at contestations around urban property. And I was looking, I began by, and the classic way you do urban history is you go and look at municipal files because, or you look at the making of the municipal, you see how it comes into being. And you look at the medical files, because if you look at, go to a, the first thing you will 
uh, you go to a municipal archive of any kind of 19th century city, be it Paris, be it Calcutta, be it London, you find medical topographies. Medical topographies are often made by the general surgeons of a city and they are basically trying to medically map the city. Calcutta's medical topographies are very much about swamps and miasma. And the argument being these swamps and miasmas are where the working poor live. And these are spaces of disease. Exactly, it's very, and within the COVID moment, it's very interesting to see the same kind of arguments panning out about the migrants uh, that every city is now spewing out and thinking about them as super spreaders is the word. So that's the kind of argument you see. And there's a lot of uh, ink spilling happening over that. So I wanted to say, okay, once these medical departments and the municipal department are producing their swamp, swamp clearing or swamp draining plans, what exactly is happening? But as anybody who works on India, we know there is the written bureaucratic world of reports and then there is the ground reality. The moment a government publishes report, it doesn't translate into action. And that's not the case just in post-colonial India. That was the case in colonial India also. Another thing which we all know who worked with the municipal bodies is municipality is always in deficit. It's not a, one of the well-funded institutions in India. It was not so also in the colonial period. And much of the early municipal funding is coming out of punishments and fines that they are doing. So that's, that's where the funding comes out of. So a body that is so heavily in deficit is going to basically take displaced population to drain swamps exactly where the urban working poor live, which actually generates revenue. Every slum generates a huge amount of revenue. So what I, as I began working, I saw the government, the municipality is actually making money out of these water bodies. That's where the money is coming from. That's where the contestation is. And that's also the site of experimentation. So if we, and we all, and something we like, while working on it, I really learned is, Anything that comes out as an anomaly within the legal domain or anything that comes out as an anomaly within the revenue domain, what they cannot fit into a perfect land grant, what they cannot fit into a perfect, is it going to be under the river board or land board, actually becomes sites of experimentation. And it's only you experiment in sites that are exceptional sites and then you bring it back into the normal field. And you really see how these marshy spaces, which are neither land, because flowing land, if flowing water actually has its own departments, that's the riverboard or the port authorities. Water that is stagnant, which would be a swamp or a marsh, or land that is not fixed, becomes the site of experimentation where a lot of things are happening. So our land acquisition laws are coming out of it, which we all know is one of the most contested laws as far as land in India goes. And the first land acquisition law is being written down in 1824, uh, the Bengal Regulation 9. It's coming out on how to basically control both agrarian marshes, embankments that are supposed to keep land and water uh, separate and the salt pans. So if you look at the first land, uh, and which, which is happening parallel to the period when in Kolkata, uh, the well, cal colonial Calcutta, the river has shifted and created a new strip of alluvial land. So the person who's writing the land Bengal regulation for land acquisition is also the person who's writing the Bengal Act for Alluvian and Diluvian a, a year apart. So he is basically worried about what to do with these kinds of land and how to actually make them profitable. So for me, that, so that, that, that is one thing I realized as I worked and I saw and I started then tracing. I took a bunch of marshes and started tracing them through the archive. And what I saw is in the initial period, marshes was a legal problem. Around 1830s, 40s, marshes are moving into becoming an engineering problem or an infrastructure problem. But also in 1850, 
Calcutta municipality is being set up. And they are suddenly now in charge of the Calcutta municipality, uh, in charge of these marshes, and they have to make them productive. And by the time we reach the 1920s, especially the interwar period, when there is a housing crisis and Bombay has a housing rights, uh, Rangoon has a housing rights, Calcutta is saying we cannot afford a housing rights, jute is going on, coming out of this area, and this is really important. They start wondering what to do, and suddenly swamps become a developer's problem. So we then see how then uh, as swamps become a problem that good landlord who will develop land by draining swamps, we see this whole emergence of reclamation as an idea, as a way, as a mode of doing urbanization start emerging. So what I try to do is what we've naturalized in this moment is when we see a swamp, we want to develop it, or there's an unused water body. Of course, we've become maybe in the last 10 years very conscious about the importance of these, but even in the 80s, any kind of undrained spaces, you make it into uh, housing because housing is a major crisis in Indian cities. So you have to maximize the use. I said that this has been naturalized, of course, but there is a history to this naturalization and law played a very, very critical part. So that's what I sort of, that's a method I used to basically manage this vast archive. And there is tons of material we actually, I actually didn't even get to. So, um, so one of the key claims is that legal innovation Mm. Or, or legal questions, sort of almost from a bottom-up perspective, right? yeah. citizens coming to court, yeah. that preceded actually the technical and engineering aspects of reclamation. Yeah. Right? So could exactly. you tell us an example of that? You mentioned several stories in your book. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about some of those, or at least one? So let me let me tell you the story. Then uh, the maybe the very interesting story is the story in eighteen o four five. The the major story that happens is the river shifts which creates a huge strip of land, almost it's a, a one mile uh, wide and four and a half miles long. That's a huge strip of land that's been formed. That is where today Calcutta's uh, Strand Road is, which is a very important thoroughfare in the city. When that strip of land opens up, that actually gives the government, the Calcutta collectorate at that moment, uh, they were doing the revenue, they were revenue farmers. Calcutta was given to the British as a revenue farm. We often forget the tax-free revenue farm. And that allows them to start basically use that strip of land to unleash a whole set of laws. So what they first do is say, we are trying to do a cadaster survey of Calcutta. That's failing. Let's do a new cadaster survey. Money gets disbursed from the revenue department to do a new cadaster survey. Number one. Number two, they say, if you want to make a claim on the land, you need to show paper. And for the first, they are actually having a lot of difficulty because Indian landowners didn't have paper often as wills or paper as pattas. They were not registering their land. No one liked registering their land. We, as we all know, no one likes to actually show your, your property papers. Property papers actually hold a very interesting, it's not the same, property paper doesn't have the same status as they do in the US. It's, it's, it still exists in a, no one wants to put exactly the price of their property on paper. So much has to be in the shadowy world. And the British recognize that very early on and they want to actually make it transparent. And that's the case if you see in every kind, right after the 2005 tsunami, the first thing they want to do is do land registry. So they do want to do a land registration of Calcutta and they are failing. So they begin with that bunch because these are all river frontage property, which are wealthy properties. And each of these wealthy landlords actually have an entire sort of surrounded by housings of working class population who are basically working in the docks, 
working in the uh, boat economy, uh, which is the major economy there, and working on the temple economy. They want to register these very expensive properties. So they unleash this process of saying, if you want to make a claim to the land, you have to show paper. But we also, of course, understand you might not have paper. If you don't want the government to take on that land, come and register your land at the police. So this unleashes, but they also start writing down uh, land acquisition law. And that, and all of this is happening not at the level of initially the legislative department, they're happening as reports that have been getting produced. These reports get then translated into legislative department laws. And then that law then gets applied to take over other kinds of laws. So if you can, the over and over again, then they start registering property that is given over to God, which are Devatar properties. Vakaf properties are actually, they have papers, whereas Hindu often uh, charitable endowments do not have paper, at least not properly till 19, 1876 onwards. So they start sort of registering these kinds of lands. So in a way, I show how this really, ultimately, if you think it's a small strip of land, but that small strip of land unleashes a kind of a paper economy of registering in the city. And it then initiates kind of a legal process of how, how a land should be moving through a market. Register at the police, go through the legislative department, then it becomes alienable property. So you can see that working. So returning to the point that we started with originally, a lot of the existing scholarship takes a top-down perspective on how urbanism was created yeah. in the colonial world. But mm. you were saying it was also sort of a bottom-up process. And a lot of the laws that seem to have been written maybe mm. out of thin air actually had this longer history to them. Yeah. So we've now talked about the property part of it. Let's talk about the water part of it. Yeah. Uh, how does that affect the story that you tell? So that's the interesting story. You know, like what we've done, we have few river histories coming out. But water, when it emerges, it emerges within river histories, right? And that's like, you know, like very few, very recent few books. We have David Gilmartin's Blood and Soil, uh, Blood and Water. We have Arubjuti Shaikia's Unquiet River. We have uh, Rohan D'Souza's earlier book, Drowned and Dam. So out of this dam literature, we have certain river histories. Because the idea being water belongs to that terrain, whereas land belongs to the property terrain. But once you start working in, a, and I think this is the story of both Chennai, this is the story of Kochi, this is the story, and I, Devika Shankar, who finished her PhD at Prince, actually wrote the story of Kochi, uh, just like it came out this year, fantastic dissertation. Then Bombay, I believe Nikhil Anand is now working on it. This is the story. So when it comes to the urban, precisely because it's very hard to divide the water from the land, the story of water comes in and water, as I say in my book, water defines the parameters of a land grant in Calcutta or a land document in Calcutta in many, many ways because so much of the ownership is impossible to divide what is land, what is water. Much of, in fact, the place where I grew up in Calcutta, all these lands are actually called Jola Jomi. And Jola Jomi exactly translates into liquid land or watery land. And the fact that we actually have collapsed water and land together without even realizing what we are doing actually has a sedimented history. And that sedimented history is a legal history of water within landed property. And that's the kind of story I wanted to add. Because once we start doing it, we will try, we will really understand what's going on with the wetlands of Calcutta, what's going on with the, as um, Sanal Mohan was saying a little while ago, what's going on with the, basically the backwaters in Kochi how those are being transformed into landed property. So if we don't understand the story of water, we do not know how property titles are used to actually produce land where there might not have been land in the first place. So that's where the question of water comes in. And it also 
like we have to also demystify water in the sense is we think of stagnant water is such a threat in urban history because that's where your malaria is coming from that's where your miasma cholera but stagnant water is extremely productive if you look at the colonial you get out of the municipal archive and the reports and start looking at the legal archive you see how much money is being made by saying we can drain it and we can make it productive so that's the kind of story i wanted to tell terrific so what about the lessons that your book has for our contemporary understanding of land politics and the yeah. legal understanding of land and water that's that's something i am myself wrapping my head around and this is the as i was telling you the second project that we are uh, currently beginning so couple of things are coming out of it so f- the question that the historical archive doesn't allow me to answer is who were, what sort of people were living in the swamps swamps as we know because they are so unclassifiable they do not live behind much records for the historian to work out of and i talk about what what does it mean to even work like because only when a swamp sort of appears as a moment of breakdown through an infrastructural breakdown as the lock harbor breakdown that i talk about the harbor that disappears or as extra land or as disappeared land once they become a problem they emerge in the archive as we know everyday things don't emerge in the archive so the question is who was living in the swamps and the what is getting erased and we can think about it when we look at what's happening in 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 the c- c- contemporary cities so the kind of people who are living along the canals maybe buckingham canal in chennai people who are living in the wetlands of calcutta these are often lower caste population these are displaced population displaced refugees who came these people displaced from the 1942 famine of bengal who came and resettled these areas as fisheries and they often do not have uh, land titles to these areas and that's precisely why i think it is easy to take occupy these swamp lands and make them into real estate because real estate and the developing these new cities are the thing so wh- how do we go about it because of course one like the, so for me like the one interesting lesson i'm still trying to wrap my head around in the question of registering land so one of the environmentalist solution is to register these lands as wetlands because that seems like a liberatory thing but moment we start registering we will immediately with one stroke of pen basically say these are all encroachers and there is that lived history of 40 50 60 years of people living and working on this land without having technically titles so once paper emerges what does it do to people's entitlement gets erased out at the same times if you don't register it as wetlands it becomes prone to becoming occupied by like housing development authorities and that's the challenge in some ways what we are seeing and the other dangerous thing that we are seeing is what um, karen coelho who work who's another urbanist who works on uh, chennai has called the lakeification because suddenly we've become very aware of water being important there is the reification of water and that's why we cannot also mystify and reify what we need to demystify water so government now has begun taking up some of these wetlands and saying oh let's make them into lakes and protect them so it's a challenge we can so what i learned doing this work is we can conserve and we can develop we cannot let be because there's an entire livelihood pattern that is there which we cannot see because it's not profitable either to the municipality or to the building lobby the two major things that run an indian city so it's within that that we have to really start thinking about our like think about how we imagine urbanization in the 21st century in india by addressing and i think the covid actually made it very very visible it's like everything that's invisible everything that runs our city 
has actually come to the thing but you have no paper no documentation no way of like making them legible unless a moment of crisis or breakdown reveals that to you right terrific thank you so much uh, adip jani for a fascinating book and a fascinating presentation thank you so much for your questions it was lovely to talk to you great take care